<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I learned that our treatment options were changing thanks to our increased understanding of genomics. And what was driving these cancers was all about genomics. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Today on the show, a nod to my episode with Don Barry entitled Gattaca Chattaca. I'm going to hop in my DeLorean Wayback Machine to welcome a dear friend and fellow origin story survivor to the show, Susan McClure. Diagnosed with breast cancer as a young mother with a two-year-old son, Sue's life and career took an abrupt turn into the world of magazine publishing where she and I cannot understate this, helped launch Cure Magazine, which is now the largest consumer magazine in the United States focused entirely on cancer. It's a really big deal. Cure Magazine became the voice of the people back then and marked a culture shift in the United States. It paved the way for a cottage industry of cancer summits and live event experiences to manifest, including CancerCon, the flagship annual Young Adult Cancer Congress produced by Stupid Cancer. Not content to change the world just once, Sue went on to launch Genome, the first consumer magazine about genomics. Genome's footprint is that it further changed culture around the awareness and understanding of the science in lay speak, no less, proving the age-old question, can science speak person? When done right, yes it can. Enjoy my conversation with the incredible, indelible Susan McClure. Sue, I'm so thrilled to have you on my show, Out of Patience. We go back a million years, and this is another one of those like Matthew Zachary throwback time machine DeLorean shows about where everything came from and how we got to hear from there and what the hell was happening in 2003. All these questions of where did advocacy start? How did we become who we are today? Whatever you want to interpret that being. And at the same time, we were like blood brother sisters diagnosed around the same time with like the same story and the same background. And it's been an honor and a pleasure to call you a friend and fellow warrior this entire time. So that was a very long self-ingratiating thing to say. I love you. I adore you. <laughs> thank you. Can we do the Bill and Ted uh, Wayback Machine sound effect? You know, yeah. go that far I'll, back. So Bree's going to find the sound effect right now. I think that was um, Wayne and Garth. Is, you're right. It was Wayne and Garth. I forgive you. Oh, it's been such a long time. No, you know, so, I'm old. So what's the what's the event horizon on late effects versus aging? When do you just decide that it's not chemo <laughs> brain anymore? You're just old as fuck. I'm. I am never going to blame it on aging. Are you crazy? There's got to no. be an algorithm that <laughs> that lives out there in the ether of like I'm old enough to where the chemo wears off, but it's still there and whatever. So. This is totally still chemo brain. Well, for I mean, sure. and, and going back to our theme of we were diagnosed in the 90s when 
it was really like napalm. What's your right. story? Well, to tell, to, I mean, for the listeners out there, let's get the basics on how we met each other through the ether of stupid young adult cancer, and then we'll get into the in, insane narrative of how we got to here. Okay, great. So we are going to the way back, the way back. I was diagnosed with cancer in 1997, and I, like you, was spending my days at that time in the media world. I was launching magazines and going to New York and pitching high-end agency folks um, all on the vision of, of uh, new magazines that I was launching. And I, I had a two-year-old son and things were going well, except that I found a, a lump in my right breast and I, you know, I was 35. So, and cancer did not run in my family. So I wasn't super worried, but I, I said to my husband, you'll, you'll laugh. I said, has this always been there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. And he said, no, it has not. So that's odd. You should probably go get that checked out. And so I did. And everybody said I was too young to have cancer. And since it didn't run in my family, I shouldn't be worried, but we should probably just go ahead and do a sonogram on that just to just to check. And I went in for my my diagnostic sonogram and the tech uh, inserted a needle in into the lump and said, hmm, not a sound hmm. you want to hear. <laughs> like really if there's not. any sound you don't want to hear, it's that sound. Exactly. And so, of course, I started crying and a few days later, I found out that I did indeed have stage 2B invasive ductal carcinoma and was put on a cocktail of chemotherapy and surgery and radiation. And, you know, you know how that goes. So, yeah, that was back in 97. And I was given the, the Red Devil chemotherapy regimen of adriamycin and cytoxin, followed by, I think it was, I want to say, 32 rounds of radiation. So good times. Those are like bowling scores you don't want to have. <laughs> That's exactly right. So uh, just just for the for the cheapest in the back, what is DCIS? Because I, I just like to throw in explainers every now and then because we hear breast cancer and it's like, oh, it's it's only one thing or it's this or it's staging. DCIS is a different conversation. Right. DCIS is ductal carcinoma in situ. And that means basically it's like stage zero breast cancer. It's abnormal cells. So people argue that it really shouldn't even be called cancer because it's like pre-cancer. But many people freak out about it. Many doctors say that it could turn into cancer. So let's just go ahead and, and cut it out. Have you noticed kind of a sidebar to that in the breast cancer community, there's there's like a lot of catfighting over who suffered more and DCIS, like you said, it isn't really breast cancer. Right. It's the it's the well, at least you got the good kind of cancer, if there is such a thing. Right. But it did disrupt your life and it did change a lot of things and it predisposed you to all sorts of fabulous new things that happened down the road. Well, and actually, I should go back because mine was not DCIS. It was inflammatory breast cancer, and it was stage two. So it was a very aggressive form of breast cancer that had not yet spread anywhere. And so that's why they took the, the road that they did with all of the, you know, the crazy chemotherapies and the, the radiation and, and surgery. And I lost my hair and 
Yeah, that's no fun. That's no fun when you're 35 and raising a two-year-old, for sure. Was this the conversation you had? Because, I mean, when I tell people about you and, and what I know of you and our story together, you know, we've dabbled in the worlds of oncofertility and fertility preservation for many, many years. It's a sore topic when you are diagnosed with cancer in your fertile years. And I want to get the story right, but so correct me if I'm wrong. Typically, women aren't even told that what you're about to do could risk your fertility future. You already had a kid when you were diagnosed. And I think you may have had the gumption to say, can we preserve our fertility? And the response was, but you already have a kid. <laughs> it's it's actually not exactly the way it went. What happened was I was not told that the treatment would likely cost me my fertility. But um, after months of not having a period afterwards, uh, I asked my doctor, it's like, I, I thought you said my periods would come back. And he said, well, McClure, I hate to tell you this, but we may have fried your ovaries with that whole treatment regimen. But at least you have one kid. So be happy that you have a kid that you can share the rest of your life with. Man, if you look up empathy in the dictionary, that is right there. <laughs> I believe I told him that he should have been a veterinarian at that point. My God. So, uh, so do, do you, I mean, right, so I'm going to jump ahead to jump back. Like, do you think like that conversation happens less often now than it did 25 years ago? I certainly hope so. But I, I think that there is such a fear associated with hearing that you have cancer in your body. It's a rush to get it out that I think a lot of patients want it out as soon, as quickly as possible, and they aren't thinking about the long-term effects of, of these decisions. And I think doctors, quite honestly, don't want to wait uh, to go through the process of, you know, harvesting eggs or or sperm and and they just want to go in and treat and move along. Is that your impression? I mean, I'd like to think that we have come quite far. I mean, if we haven't come at all far, then that's the worst thing ever. But I can't imagine that we haven't at least made some progress. Look, there's and you know this, there there are state mandates on fertility preservation coverage and and employer benefits improvements and standards of care and guidelines and best practices around making sure even ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, has guidelines that if you treat somebody that is in their fertile years, you must have what I call the ovarian Miranda rights conversation. So assuming these structures are now in place, one might hope that they're being implemented in practice, don't you think? I would hope so. And certainly all the work that you did with stupid cancer and educating young adults around this topic specifically, since it, it impacted you, it's uh, certainly impacted me. These are topics that you want to shout from the rooftops, hey, pay attention to this uh, because it does impact your lives forever. So you were diagnosed with breast cancer in the late 90s and I had brain cancer, so there was really nothing for me. Were you sucked up into the, I would say it wasn't really uh, calamitous, but there was a lot of good and weird breast cancer noise in the late 90s with the starts of tons of movements and communities and rides and races. Where did you land, if at all anywhere, during the advocacy uprisings of breast cancer in the 90s and early 2000s? You know, I didn't want any part of it. <laughs> wow. I, I didn't, Good for I you. Wanted, I just wanted to get through my treatment, uh, get back to normal, raise my son and move along. And I wasn't joining a movement. I wasn't real. In fact, I felt so out of touch with 
so many people that were diagnosed because I was so much younger, I didn't feel like I had a posse, you know? In fact, even the support groups at that time were held in the middle of the week at 10 o'clock in the morning or something like that. So it's not like you could just, you know, get off work and go sit with a group of women for an hour and a half in the middle of the day. So I truly just wanted to get back to work and resume my life as if nothing had happened. And of course, as you know, that's impossible. <laughs> yeah. Man plans and God laughs. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. I, I got back to work and I found that everything had changed, that my perspective had changed and that the work that I had been so proud of in the past felt very empty and shallow. And I wanted to do something more meaningful with the years that I had left. And so I thought maybe I needed to go into social work or something. But fortunately for me, a good friend of both of ours, actually, Heidi Adams, was at a Christmas party with her at her oncologist's house, I believe. And she met a doctor who was launching a magazine for cancer patients, survivors and caregivers called Cure. And she recommended me for that publisher role. I remember hearing about Cure. This was in the days before I was kind of sucked into the world of advocacy. I think I had been aware of Heidi Adams and super shout out to Heidi, one of the origin stories of the young adult cancer movement, like version 1.0 of the young adult cancer movement. And her, her website was called Planet Cancer. And I had learned about it through my entry point into, so your Heidi Adams was my Craig Lustig. And Craig introduced me to the Young Adult Cancer Universe. I've been very vocal about this on my show and, and my writings and whatnot. And this notion that there would be a magazine for cancer survivorship was incredible because I was only familiar with MAM, M-A-M-M magazine. And, and then I think there was Coping magazine which again, we were younger, it didn't really speak to us. Cancer is, you know, honestly 80% over the age of 65. But this seemed to be something I was like, huh, a magazine about the cancer lifestyle? What was your, did you have a knee jerk reaction to that? Like you must've been like, huh? I was so impressed with Dr. Vinay Jane and Kathy Latour's ability to, Kathy Latour was the founding editor of the magazine and she was really adamant about making sure that Cure had a 50-50 blend of both the science and the humanity associated with the cancer experience. And they would literally count pages of the magazine and she would say, see, it's too heavily skewed toward the science. We need to put more psychosocial stuff in there. That's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a really interesting time to be involved in journalism, in science writing with those two people, usually locking horns over, you know, how much of one or the other to put in a particular issue. I don't want to understate the significance of launching a journal, a publication like this at the time it was launched, because this was the very early beginnings of what we now consider modern day cancer survivorship advocacy. It was unprecedented in the same sense of what Livestrong was doing at the time and the Young Adult Cancer Movement was doing at the time. And even in broadcast journalism, we look at like Selma Schimmel and what she was doing at terrestrial radio. All these things started to really manifest and to have something in print. Hey, kids, remember print? 
<laughs> was <laughs> right. so meaningful. So, all right. So you step, you take the job, you step in, what happens? Well, it was also right around the time that direct-to-consumer drug advertising was allowed. Oh my God. The start of that. Exactly. Ask so, your doctor if this is right for you. <laughs> that's exactly that right. That was my sexy pharma ad voice. <laughs> And then the long list of side effects that comes after that. Side effects <laughs> might include jumping off a cliff and dying. Right, right. So we had lots of pharmaceutical companies that were eager to run ads in that magazine. And the magazine was distributed at the point of care. So doctor's offices all over the country uh, were re receiving this magazine. And another interesting tidbit about this, I mean, Dr. Jane was brilliant in his plan to launch at precisely the right time because you had the direct to consumer drug ads that were allowed you also he got right under the wire before hipaa came looming down and he actually took a mailing list from i think he bought a mailing list of cancer patients survivors and caregivers and sent the inaugural issue to their homes which would never be unsolicited. Done to, yeah, unsolicited. I got one in the, I got one in the mailbox and went, "What? Wow, <laughs> yeah. wow, that's Moxie." I, <laughs> I can't do that. of that guy. <laughs> right. Can't do that anymore. No, it, this is the hashtag things we can't get away with anymore episode. <laughs> that's right. Including all those doctor conferences in Aruba and the Bahamas. Exactly. He had to stop those as well. I, I, I do want to just pause for a second and, and just reiterate what you said that Kathy, again, rest in peace, Kathy Latour, one of my earliest mentors, a dear friend, I, I think as of this taping, she passed away maybe a year ago, a huge loss to our community. But the fact that she was so acutely aware that this was a consumer magazine first and a science magazine second was such a refreshing like take on cancer from a humanistic perspective, from a readership perspective. You wanted people like you and me and the average Joe and Jane to get information from this that was in the language of human beings and not necessarily in the lack of babblefish translation from science to person. That's exactly right. And I think the, the tagline, you know, we make cancer understandable was something that we all took very, very seriously. And when we had our patient and survivor forums, doctors would come up to me after these programs and say, oh my gosh, the people attending this conference sound like doctors. They're asking tough questions. They know about treatment options. They're wanting to know what's next. And it was because of the wonderful writing that was in that magazine and still is today. Back with our guest after the break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Sue, I was going through the archives because apparently the internet is forever and our footprints will never die as long as they are in digital form on a server somewhere in the desert. And some of the articles that you wrote for Cure in the mid to late 2000s, they're still there, surprise, surprise. But one of them I really remember reading because it was around the time that I was reconciling my own survivor guilt, having caused my parents so much grief for getting sick. Clearly, it wasn't my fault for getting sick, and but it's, it's the guilt. And you wrote an amazing piece, you know, having a two-year-old when you were diagnosed on how do you talk to children about cancer? And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if there were that many how to talk to your kids about cancer, Dick and Jane books out there. This was really from the mother's perspective and it hit on all the points. Was it hard to write that piece? Actually, I think I was so upset when I wrote that piece that it all just flowed. Have you ever had that experience? (laughs) The floodgates of the muse upon you, yes. Right, yeah, so you're right. I mean, being diagnosed at 35 and raising a a two-year-old was not typically the normal cancer experience, right? So most people, as I was constantly reminded, are diagnosed much later in life. And so I think people don't know how how to talk they didn't at the time know how to talk about this type of thing with, with their children. And so I think the article that you're referring to was when I was called by my son's daycare, uh, and told that, yeah, told that he had said a bad word in class and I needed to come in to the executive director's office and talk to her before picking up my son. And I immediately thought of my husband's road rage and how he might drop an F-bomb or something while driving down the road with Ryan in the, in the backseat. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, I am going, I was preparing a speech. I was going to tell them that I would make sure that my husband didn't do that anymore and uh, we would take care of the situation. And so you can imagine how shocked I was when I found out that what happened was my son was playing house in his little daycare class and he was holding a baby and he told his friend that his mom's booby was sick. And the instructor heard him say the word booby and pulled him out of the house that he was playing in and sat him in a corner and said that we do not use words like that in this classroom. Wow. And so the proper term is breast. Hmm. So I did my, oh, no, you didn't (laughs) speech. (laughs) And I basically said, so let me, and my Columbo. I like playing Columbo sometimes too. Way throwback. We're going way back now. You got to channel your inner uh, business to do that, by the way. (laughs) But I said, uh, so you're telling me that my son was trying to talk about his mom's illness and you shut him down. 
you put him in a corner instead. And it was, I was livid, as you can imagine. I just couldn't believe that they missed such an incredible opportunity to help comfort a child whose parent was going through something like that. Um, but the, the silver lining of it all uh, was when we got home, I sat down and I talked to my son about how he felt about my cancer. And he told me that he liked me better with hair. And I told him I liked me better with hair too, but it was going to grow. <laughs> it was going to grow back. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he told me that he didn't like that I had to sleep so much. And I explained that that sleeping was helping my body heal, and that someday soon we would be back at the park and playing. And we had this wonderful conversation that never would have happened had that situation not presented itself. But it was it was pretty horrifying. And you were the publisher. So, you know, it's like from descending upon the ranks of the perceived who's making this magazine, you're the people who are reading the magazine as well. And it just further justified and substantiated that cure was at its time just so necessary. And it goes back to like, it's what you didn't know you needed. Here's where I can find real information from real people. And the science explained to me well. And, and I was so enamored with it. I was like, I want to be in cure. It's like you want to aspire to something. I want to be in cure one day. And I, I've been in cure a lot, many, many times. And it's been wonderful. But I think it's important for the listeners to know, you know, past his prologue, what cure managed to pull off in the 2000s, forget the pre-HIPAA stuff and the other, and the DCC <laughs> ads and whatever. The very first like national cancer patient summits were born in the 2000s with the Cure Media Summits in Texas. And you were part of that. And it convened thousands of people. And it was it was unprecedented. It set such a such a tone for where the country was headed from an advocacy awareness. And I'm almost like a destigmatization that it's the end of judgments. It's the end of stigma. Cancer is not getting normalized per se, but as a society, we now understand a lot more about how we integrate it into our lives when, if it unfortunately comes into our lives. I loved working on those forums. They were set up so that the, the morning sessions would be for the general audiences and would cover things that everybody could really relate to and understand and feel educated about. And then the afternoon, they would break out into smaller, very individualized topics on a variety of subjects. One, one thing that always struck me was we started giving out these, these um, name badges, and then they'd have ribbons where you've, you've been to conferences where you put a ribbon on your badge that, you know, affiliates you with a, a particular group. So we had all these different ribbons on a table, and people could pick which type of which ribbon they needed based on their cancer experience. And there were people with two and three ribbons deep, there were people using them as conversation starters to meet people who had had similar experiences. And I, I loved that. But there was this one woman who absolutely did not want a ribbon. She didn't want to be associated with any of that. And I said, that's fine. You know, you don't have to put a ribbon on if you don't want to. Toward the end of the day, she comes running up to me and she had three ribbons hanging from her name tag. And she said, thank you so much for this. I've met so many interesting people 
And you're right, it was a destigmatization that she had apparently never experienced before. Yeah. And just, just to go back to the past as prologue, you know, many people know that at Stupid Cancer, we hosted an annual trade show called CancerCon or the OMG Cancer Summit. I modeled so much of that event, which spanned multiple days as a destination event in you know New York or Vegas or, or Denver. And my learnings, my experiences from what you guys established carry forward to that. The idea of you identify how you want to identify, and if you wind up exiting the car wash a lot cleaner than you came in, we hope that's what your experience is. <laughs> yeah. and, I love that. You know, and CancerCon is an amazing, amazing program. You should feel very proud of what you built because I learned a lot from you in going to those programs also. They were wonderful. What a wonderful community building. It was fun. I mean, how can you go to a cancer conference and actually really enjoy yourself? But you could at those. And that's what I felt. That's what I felt as a 10-year, 8-year, whatever, 11-year survivor, just trying to figure out what he wants to do to give back. And before I even knew I wanted to start a nonprofit organization and just getting to know a tribe that I wished I knew that I had when I was left alone for dead at 21 years old, you know, that old PR story. But I, I again, credit where credit is due, what you established, you and Kathy and the Cure team established has changed so much of how we perceive the way we live our lives today in the cancer culture. I'll just say it that way. But it wasn't the end for you because you just can't quit. <laughs> and then, you know, as if like publishing and journalism wasn't enough for you in this space, you decided to tackle the universe. <laughs> if cancer is this, then DNA and genetics and all those fancy syllables and Gattaca stuff, that was your next big mountain to climb. Talk to us about that. Well, when I was at Cure, I, of course, learned that our treatment options were changing thanks to our increased understanding of genomics. And what was driving these cancers was all about genomics. And I met a girl who had exactly the same diagnosis that I had had. And as you, you know, being from the stupid cancer community, people, once they know what you do for a living, you're like a beacon. You know, people want to come to you and ask you questions of how did you get through? How did you make it? How did you survive? So this girl comes to me with exactly the same diagnosis, and it was 10 years later. They put her on exactly the same treatment regimen that I was put on. And I said, look, you know, you have exactly the same cancer I had. They're putting you on exactly the same reg regimen. I am sure everything's going to be fine. It hasn't spread anywhere. Otherwise, you're super healthy. She was a runner and uh, ate only whole foods and, you know, just the epitome of, of great health other, otherwise. And so she felt a lot better after our conversation. She started treatment. She, you know, she went through six months of treatment just like I did, came out with a clean bill of health. You're cancer free. And a few months later, she was complaining about a pain in her rib. And uh, I said, that's also common, real normal for you to worry about every ache and pain. Just go talk to your doctor. Well, she talked to her doctor and not only was her cancer not gone, it was everywhere. Oh, I mean, no. it, was in, it was in her bones. It was in her brains. It was everywhere. And that's when I had this aha moment that, hey, look, you know, I listened to your, your uh, podcast with Dawn Barry the other day and I... I know that she said we're 99.9% .9 alike, but there's this 
1% in each of us that makes us different. And we're not alike. There are certain things that are going on with the, in each of us that either prevent or promote cancer's growth. And that's when I decided enough is enough. People don't know this. Nobody's talking about this. The standard of care is still the norm out there. We need to have people asking more serious questions about what's driving their diseases. And so I launched Genome Magazine to take care of that. Up until the time that you decided to start Genome Magazine, what did the publishing landscape look like in terms of perceived competition? In the genomic space? Yes. There was not any competition in the genomic space, except for journals, you know, medical journals. So there was nothing for the everyday consumer out there. In fact, it was funny. We, uh, we sold genome on the newsstand and we were so excited when we, when we saw it in um, Barnes and Noble, but they put it in the health and wellness section. So you can imagine a, a very scientific title called genome surrounded by celebrity women who were getting their pre-baby bodies back. <laughs> you know you made it when you're next to Us Weekly. <laughs> right. It was self and health and shape and genome. And we had a dog on the cover for that issue. So it was even more it was even more strange. So we ended up asking our newsstand distributor to, to move us to uh, the section where you can find Scientific American and Wired and Smithsonian and, you know, a little bit more thought provoking kind of titles. Category relative. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So in the interest of like, like uh, striking lightning twice, you know, working on the first cancer lifestyle publication, and then now working on the first genetics consumer lifestyle ish publication, what teachings did you garner by working with Cure that established some kinds of precedent or starting points on the way you create consumer-friendly narrative with something even more complicated like genetics? Well, the great thing was I was able to pull from a lot of the same really talented writers and editors that worked on Cure for help with genome. And I knew that I had to have a rock-solid editorial advisory board. That was really important. And so I got on LinkedIn and I started typing in genomics experts. <laughs> you know? And all of these really interesting people started popping up and I reached out and one guy says to me, Jeff Ginsburg over at Duke said, this is actually the first time LinkedIn has actually done anything useful. <laughs> it linked you into something. <laughs> it did. But I found this this amazing group of people who said, wow, a consumer magazine, a consumer company, you know, media company, all about genomics. This is, this is groundbreaking and I want to be a part of it. And so I, I had to make sure that the editorial advisory board was not just going to be name only. They had to actually roll up their sleeves and provide editorial ideas and review content and get on a quarterly editorial advisory board call. And they were wonderful uh, helping shape the the content for the magazine. And then, you know, using using incredible editors like Lena Wong, who was the editorial director at Cure, and Catherine Lago-Marcino was uh, also over at Cure as a managing editor, using people like that to shape the stories and make sure that they resonate with everyday people and are 
you know, the acronyms are not in there and we're explaining things well, um, made all the difference in the world. So over the course of its run over several, how many years and how many issues were produced? We were quarterly and we published from 2014 to 2018. So the footprint and the impact must be huge because you can measure that. This is regular media. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was one of those things where I always joke about when I tell people that I'm with Genome Magazine and that I, you know, founded a magazine all about cancer, I mean, all about genomics, when I'm at a cocktail party trying to explain what I do for a living, it's like people, it's like dogs when they hear a high-pitched whistle, they start <laughs> turning their heads yeah. kind of sideways you and did looking, what? <laughs> looking for an exit. Like, I don't want to talk to this lady about genomics. Oh my gosh. But then when you explain that our lives are changing because of our increased understanding of our own DNA and how it's going to revolutionize healthcare, it's going to change the way we have children, it's, a, it's evolving, it's poised to evolve ourselves as a species, this field. And so it's fascinating. And then people start pulling out notepads and writing things down and how do I find this? So I, I certainly think that there, there was a need for this type of information, but we still have a very long way to go in terms of educating everyday people about how they can use this in their daily lives. Yeah, and what an incredible way to, to wrap up our conversation because now you are, I would say you are untethered to take over the world with the wisdom you brought <laughs> upon it. And now you're working here with me at Offscript Media on some really exciting projects that we will be revealing to our listeners in the coming weeks. But my God, how far, well, actually, we know how far. It was 1997 and 1996. It's been a billion years in cancer time, in dog years, right? So... When you look back, Sue, and you want to maybe ascribe one specific moment to when you knew that this is exactly what you wanted to do when you grew up, can you trace that cord back to one particular moment? I feel that it goes back as far as cure. The ability to be able to pay it forward and to use my journalistic experience in a way that helps people understand this really complex information has made my life so much more rich and enjoyable. And I would never propose that people should consider cancer as a career move. But for me, it has been a remarkable journey because I've met people like you who are truly changing the landscape in terms of how patients are treated and how they're educated and what their expectations are when they're diagnosed with something as significant as cancer or heart disease or another rare disease. Um, it's been an amazing journey. And I always, I always feel like we should never underestimate a person's ability to understand really complex information when their lives depend on it. A great friend, a great partner in crime, Susan McClure. I, I don't even know how to outro you. Like you're the founder of Genome Creative, the publisher of Genome Magazine, the, the publisher of Cure Media. I mean, there's a lot. It's just like <laughs> Sue McClure. That's it. Round of applause. You rock. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. It was great fun. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. 
Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>